Thank you, Allison. That was wonderful. The light of the world has come. Noel. Um, <clears throat> you might not expect me up here this early, but we are going to do something a little bit different. And by different, I mean we're going to do something that we haven't done since before COVID times, which means before I was even here. So I don't know how this goes normally, but I get to be the one that does it. Um, Pastor Mike <clears throat> would do every family Sunday a why moment, um, an opportunity to examine why we do the things that we do on Sunday mornings. Um, so things like why we have a communion table here, why we have colors on the cross, why we even have a cross at the front of the sanctuary, um, all sorts of things like that, answering the why questions of what makes a church service, a worship service, unique. The, the goal is simply to answer the question, why do we fill in the blank? Um, and I think we can all be honest in saying that in this sanctuary, we do a lot of weird stuff to the people who don't normally come here. They think that's weird that you do that. Um, so in light of our sermon series that we're starting today, um, we are going to look at this why question of why do we sing songs together? Um, I'm curious, shout out some answers if you have them. What are some other times or places when you gather with other people and you sing songs out loud? Ooh, out of camp out. Ooh, out camp out? Around the fire. Around the fire, yeah. Kumbaya. Yeah. Birthdays. Birthdays, yeah. Singing happy birthday. Concerts, maybe. Singing along. Caroling, I think I heard. Yeah. Karaoke. And there was another one back. Road trips. Road trips, yeah. Singing with your family. Yes. So there are some, some other examples out there of, why, of when we do this, but the fact that there are so many of us here and the fact that we are all singing songs and we have lyrics up on the screen so that we all know what we're singing, that's pretty unique to the norm. <laughs> that's, that's not a, a normal thing that we do gathering in large groups like this on purpose to sing songs together. Um, and so why do we do this every Sunday? Well, an easy answer is because the Bible tells us so. The Bible tells us to sing uh, a lot. The book of Psalms is a book of, of prayers, of songs, um, and it is full of commands to sing for joy, to sing praise, to sing, sing to God, sing of God's love, sing praise to God's name. The list could go on and on and on. Um, but there are also several um, instances in the New Testament letters when we are called to sing God's praises. In the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians, it says, teach and warn each other with all wisdom by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And in the book of James, are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. So singing is something that has been common throughout history, throughout um, the history of humanity and throughout the history of Christian gatherings. It's something that is a common command throughout scripture and a common occurrence when followers of Christ get together. If we're going strictly based on the number of times it's commanded, um, this would be far above a lot of other things that we do in the name of being followers of Christ. Um, it is a vital part of what defines us as the people of God. 
Uh, but what is so important about it? Why is the act of singing any different than just reciting lyrics or um, anything else that might be more significant? Um, as we see in some of those verses that I read, and again throughout Scripture, worship in song is a response to who God is and God's activity in our lives and in our world. Um, as, as I've heard it phrased before, the, the question of why do we sing together can be answered with three words, praise, proclaim, and pray. So praise, it is a, a declaration of who we believe God to be. The words that we sing are a recognition and an affirmation of the character of the God that we follow, the God that, that brings us together in the first place, the reason we gather when we sing these songs, we're not just singing them because we like them or because they have a fun beat. We are singing these specific words because we are singing them to God. We are praising God for who he is, declaring who God is and God's character. So, for example, we're going to be singing a song in a, a few minutes called Jesus Messiah. Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, Rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven, Jesus Messiah, Lord of all. That is just a list of who God is and who we believe God to be. So the first one is praise and also proclaim. Our worship songs don't just praise God for who God is, but they are also a response to God's activity in our personal lives and the lives of those around us, the world around us. We proclaim God's activity in humanity. Noel, right? Come and see what God has done in our midst. Um, a song that we're going to be singing actually next week, The Goodness of God. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. These, these lyrics and, and many more proclaim how God is at work in the lives of his people, us, and the world around us. So pr praise, proclaim, and pray. Um, this one, in some forms, is a little bit more rare, um, but to pray to God to do it again in our lives. The, the faithfulness and the goodness and the character of God that we sing about, we ask God to, to do it again in our lives, to intervene in this dark and messed up and broken world that we live in. We ask God to invade our world. And the song that we have repeated over and over throughout the Advent season, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we are asking God to come invade our lives, invade the lives of humanity, to ransom captive Israel, to bring order to all things, to cheer our spirits and disperse the gloomy clouds of night. And so the answer to why do we sing songs together is praise, proclaim, prayer. It's a response of praise, a declaration of who God is. It's a response of proclamation, thanksgiving of how God has been at work in our lives. And it's a response of prayer, trusting God and, and petitioning God to do it once again in our lives. So it doesn't matter, the songs that we sing, it doesn't matter if we like them or we dislike them. What matters is, are they true? Are they true to who God is and to the scriptures that tell us who God is? And speaking of liking or disliking songs, um, a couple of quick asides about how these songs are selected. Um, we have a team of five of us who meet every single week, and we plan 
two weeks out on what songs we are singing. Um, whoever is preaching that week sends out an email saying, hey, this is the text I'm using, this is the theme, and these are some song ideas. And the rest of the team reads through that scripture, and we send in other song ideas, and then we meet and collaborate and talk through how those songs, not, not whether or not we like those songs, we have done many songs that many of us don't like, but how well they fit the text for that week. It all comes back to God's word. So as a team, we are not just picking songs based on which ones we like the most. We're not just picking them based on um, the speed, uh, the tempo of them, fast or slow. We're not just picking the ones that are the easiest, but we are picking the ones that are the truest to where God is leading us communally that week. So these songs that we sing have been run through a team of people. They have been thoughtfully and intentionally selected, and they affirm what our team believes is true to Scripture and true to who God is. Um, and then the second thing that I'll, I'll end with this, um, and the worship team can come back up. The worship team, the people who are on this stage every week, are not here so that we can sit and, and think, oh, they are so great, they are so talented, they are so good at, at their jobs. The worship team is here to lead worship, to guide us in the, the music and, and everything else of, of our service, to help us put into practice what we, are, what we just talked about. Um, not to do the worshiping for us, not to be worshiped, um, but to get out of the way and allow the Holy Spirit, allow God to move in our hearts and help us to worship God. That's it. So we, we pray every week as a team that we would get out of the way so that God can move. Check, check, hello. I didn't uh, get to saying it earlier, but Happy New Year. I was also going to make the classic joke of, you know, I look out there and I, I don't think I've seen any of you since last year. Oh, that's bad. That's bad. <clears throat> All right. Um, so there is a reason that this month's why moment dealt with the question of why we gather together every Sunday to sing songs. Um, first off, I hope that it is obvious to you that Pastor Mike and I, um, as well as our worship planning team, take this process and this time of singing songs very, um, very intentionally, very seriously. We believe that worshiping God through music is vital in the life of a Christ follower. And that's why over these next seven weeks, um, we're doing a sermon series. I convinced Mike to do a sermon series partially because I convinced him that I'll take the first four and a half weeks. So it worked out um, for somebody. I don't know who. Um, so over the next seven weeks, we're going to be moving through a series, as you can see up there, called Sound Doctrine. Um, a little pun there for you. This series is going to take a closer look at some of the songs that we currently sing in worship and also some new ones that we're going to be adding in. Um, it's meant to be a time for all of us to kind of re-examine the why, um, the why of why we worship in song, as well as to be more aware of what we are singing, the why and the what of worship. So each week we're going to cover a specific song. As you can see, this week is We Three Kings, but we'll get to that in a little bit. 
Um, we're going to kind of examine the lyrics of these songs uh, for some scriptural and theological themes, um, as well as identify kind of a larger truth to these songs. Um, the songs that we sing, the words that we proclaim when we sing these songs, they mean something. They are purposeful. They have not been chosen by accident by the songwriters or by the, the worship team. Um, so as we move through this series, I want to challenge you to focus on what we are singing, to focus on the lyrics and listen to the words and ask yourself, do I really believe these? Do I, do I really believe what I'm singing? And more than that, think about who you're singing them to. Are you, are you singing them because you like it or are you singing it because you truly believe that it is for God? You are singing to God, the God who created you, the God who loves you, the God who is calling you deeper. So over the next seven weeks, we are going to practice sound doctrine. Um, disclaimer, these songs are not scripture. <laughs> some of them take parts from scripture. Some of them directly quote scripture. Um, but they take, at the very least, they take some truths of scripture and they put a melody to it. They, they make it a song. So our hope is that you are transformed not by the songs that we sing, but by the scriptural and theological truths that they speak to. So as we do each Sunday, as we will continue to do during this series, um, let's begin with scripture. So would you stand with me as we honor God's word together this morning? From Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea, during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. He gathered all the chief priests and the legal experts and asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you least among the rulers of Judah, because from you will come one who governs, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the time when the star had first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search carefully for the child. When you've found him, report to me, so that I too may go and honor him. When they heard the king, they went. And look, the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. Falling to their knees, they honored him. Then they opened their treasure chests and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So last week, we celebrated the birth of this little guy right here, baby Jesus. We gathered here, some of us, on both Sunday and on Saturday. And we sang songs, we heard scripture about the king who was coming to make all things right. And we rejoiced with glad hearts. Are the slides ready, James? With glad hearts. Oh, glad hearts. 
We rejoice with glad hearts and smiles on our faces because the waiting of Advent was over and the joy and the hope of Christmas and the birth of Jesus had come. But for some, this is not happy at all. This is not joyous news. It is terrible, horrible, no good, very bad news. But not for Alexander, for a man by the name of Herod. Herod the Great. You see, Herod the Great, as he was commonly referred to, was um, a rather paranoid and insecure man. He was the king, but he lived kind of in this constant fear that someone would try and overthrow him. Someone would try and rise up and steal away his throne. And on top of all these insecurities, Herod was known as a very cruel and vengeful and mean and ruthless man who would do whatever necessary to protect what was his, to protect and to stymie those threats. In fact, it's widely believed that he killed his wife, he killed three of his sons, he killed his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle, and many others because he thought they were threatening him, they, they were trying to overtake his throne. Herod was a meanie, a bully. He was cruel to the extreme and almost without a conscience in how he dealt with people. He was a man that had some trust issues, and he was not afraid to do something about those trust issues. So when Herod hears word of this newborn king, this king of the Jews, as they call him, and from foreigners, no less, when he hears of this, he is undoubtedly both shaken and ready to take serious action to protect what is his. To, to protect against this imposter, the king of the Jews. The one thing that he feared above all else was a threat to his throne, a threat to his kingdom. And here were these men who were claiming that that had already taken place, that this baby had already overtaken the throne and was the king of the Jews. In fact, he had murdered his three sons because he was afraid. He thought that they were a little bit too eager to take his place. In fact, there's this little Greek pun um, that Augustus Caesar apparently used in describing Herod. I'm not going to say it in the original Greek because I don't know it, but it is this. It is better to be Herod's hus than his huios, which means it's better to be Herod's swine than to be his son. This report of a newborn king of the Jews had Herod troubled. He is Shaken, And the text says that Herod was troubled and that everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. The Roman government allowed um, considerable religious freedom to people um, of the various nations that it governed, which means that it was okay for the Jews to worship the one true God. That was, that was kosher. Um, but a king of the Jews, king of the Jews, that was a claim of revolution. Right? The title of king was only granted by Rome, and any claim outside of that had subversive implications. They were trying to overthrow Herod. So Herod gathers together all of the chief priests and the legal experts, and he comes up with his plan. He'll send these foreigners off to find the boy, and they'll report back so that he can go worship the baby as well. But nobody believes that, right? Nobody is fooled by this insecure, vengeful, cruel man 
saying, oh yeah, I want to go worship this person who's apparently taking over my throne. Nobody believes that. That's probably, that's not sneaky at all, right? Everybody knows his intentions. But that's his plan. He sticks to it. He tells the foreigners, they're like, okay. And he sends them off and waits anxiously for a report on their location. Now, speaking of these foreigners, Matthew uses the term magi, which is understood in a a few different ways, um, can be translated a few different ways. It could mean that they were magicians or sorcerers or dream interpreters, studiers of sacred writings, pursuers of wisdom, or as as I, th- I think is most commonly referred to, astrologers. They, they looked at the stars. They studied the stars. So what is understood from this term, magi, is that these were honorable men who came from some eastern um, region, likely from Babylon um, or somewhere in Persia or Mesopotamia. These men had traveled a long ways. First of all, to get to Jerusalem, to Herod's doorstep. And their reason for the journey, so they say, is that they are looking for the newborn king of the Jews. We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to honor him. They followed a star, so they say, and they are coming to look for this king. These magi were Gentiles. Um, They were men of another nation who followed other gods or idols, and yet here they were searching for the king of the Jews. It would seem that the coming of this baby, this baby Jesus, in some way calls people of all nations to acknowledge Jesus as king of the Jews and even causes them to worship him and and acknowledge his royalty and reign. Because if we look at the text in verse 2, the Magi don't come in search of some newborn who years down the line will become a king. They say that this magi, or they say that this, this newborn king is the king. They have come to celebrate and honor him as king of the Jews right here, right now. But perhaps the most curious part of this story is how they got there and why they got there. This journey from Babylon, the area of Babylon where they may have begun to Jerusalem is pretty long. It's an estimated that they traveled about 900 miles um, with, if they had all of their caravans and everything, um, it would be about six miles a day. So approximately 150 days is a very, very rough estimate of how long it would have taken them to get there. So it's a long journey. And the only reason that they, they offer is they've seen his star in the east and we've come to honor him. So they see the star and they come to Jerusalem for the birth of the Christ child. So these wise men likely would have been at least somewhat familiar with the prophecies of the olden days um, through their interaction with the other Jews that were in Babylon. And as those who studied these stars for a living, they would have recognized that this star was a little bit different. This star was not natural. It was, not a, it was more than some natural phenomenon. It was special. And they believed that it was because it was leading them to the new king, the new king of the Jews. Jerusalem was 
a natural destination for them because that's where the king of the Jews would reside. And so whether or not they actually followed the star to Jerusalem, they end up in Jerusalem saying, where is the king of the Jews? This is, this is where we believe he is to be. But after their encounter with Herod, they, they look once again to the skies for this star to guide them. And the text says that when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. So the sight of this star, the divine guidance to this place of the newborn king, it fills the Magi with great joy because they know that their quest will be satisfied. And this journey is much shorter, as you can see, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It's about six miles. And this star guides them not just to the town, but to the exact location of this Christ child. This, this star that is God's guiding light to the Magi provides them with specific and localized guidance so that they find where Jesus, this young Jesus, now one or two years old, this toddler Jesus is at. And not only that, but it brought them from hundreds of miles away to this exact location at least a year, maybe two years after his birth. And their immediate response is to bow down and worship. They fall to the ground and worship this young child. They clearly believed that Jesus was, was something, someone that was worthy of their adoration. And while it's somewhat doubtful that they understood Jesus's full divine nature, um, their actions were pretty appropriate, I would say. And they speak to this unique nature of Jesus, of this Christ child who has come. Whether it makes sense to them or not, they spontaneously bow down in worship. He is the object of this quest that they have been on, this journey that they have been on. And he is worshipped by both Jews and Gentiles, as evidenced here with the Magi. So this honor and this worship quickly turns to a presentation of gifts. They give the, everybody knows them, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I remember when I was a kid, we got socks every year for Christmas. And I remember getting socks and thinking, why do I need these when I was a kid? Can you imagine a one or two-year-old getting gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Pfft, don't need these. I'm sure toddler Jesus handled it way better than I would have. But um, these gifts are confusing for a child. But when we look at, at them and, and understand this incredible significance that they have, um, it speaks to the kind of king that these men believed Jesus to be. So here's an image of the three different gifts. Um, gold was a gift most appropriate for a king. It's a precious metal that was used in jewelry, ornaments, currency, idols, etc. Um, it was royal. It was, it was high quality. And frankincense, um, that was a symbol of deity at the time, and it was a gift that was given to priests because it would be something that they used in the temple. And then myrrh was an embalming oil and it was used to kind of treat a dead body so that it would not rot and decompose. Um, it would protect it 
and sterilize it. Um, So each of these gifts are given with purpose. Each of these gifts are given out of honor and reverence for this child. Each gift is also a prophecy or a recognition of who Jesus Christ is. So gold, it was most appropriate for a king and was given to the king of kings, the forever king. And frankincense was a gift for a priest and was given to the one who would become the great high priest. And myrrh was used on those who had died and was given to the one who sacrificed himself for all of us. So the Magi's offerings and gifts to the the Christ child were expressions of this belief and this overwhelming joy that they felt when finding the one who was worthy of their worship. So now, we arrive at our song for this morning. Um, The lyrics are in your uh, bulletin there, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But I want to give you a little bit of a background on the song itself, We Three Kings. Um, It's a song that has been around for nearly 150 years, and um, one we probably have all heard at some point. The author and composer of We Three Kings is a man by the name of John Henry Hopkins Jr. He was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1820. Um, he, He went to school at the University of Vermont and then at General Theological Seminary in New York City. He was trained to be a lawyer and he graduated in 1850. And after he graduated, he became the founding editor of the Church Journal, which was a a newspaper, a periodical that went out um, and was published in New York City. And he worked there as the editor for 15 years. And while he was there, he became the first church music instructor at General Theological Seminary. Um, He was recognized as a leading Episcopal church musician and was ordained in 1872. And after he was ordained, he served as the head of two different parishes or congregations over the next 15 years. And it was during this time that he um, wrote, sorry, during his time as the editor of this newspaper, that he wrote this song in 1857, um, originally titled Three Kings of Orient. He wrote this song that we now know as We Three Kings. It was originally written for a Christmas pageant at the college, um, but eventually became very popular amongst his family and friend groups. And uh, it became so popular that he decided, well, I'll publish it in my, uh, my Carol's Hymns and Songs book that he published about 10 years later. Um, it's unique in the fact that he wrote both the lyrics and the, the score, the music behind it. Usually a composer at that time wrote one or the other, um, but he was unique in writing both. And it was the first Christmas carol originating from the United States to achieve widespread popularity um, and went on to be featured in a lot of different Christmas collections around the world, not just in America. Um, Also of note, Hopkins delivered the eulogy of the funeral of President Ulysses S. Grant. And um, he ended up dying in New York at the age of 71 in 1891. His nephew, Charles Sweet, wrote a biography uh, titled A Champion of the Cross, Being the Life of John Henry Hopkins. So this song that he wrote has lived on well beyond 
his name. Um, it has lived on for 150 plus, I'm assuming it will be ongoing, um, 150 years since it was written. It has ancient history, it has ancient truth to it that outlines this narrative that we are talking about this morning of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. So we're going to take a couple of minutes to listen to it. You can follow along with the lyrics that are in your bulletin, or it'll be um, a lyric video that's up on the screen. But follow along, pay attention to the words, um, and I'll be back in just a minute. Guide us to thy 
So it has a rather plodding feel to it, right? A marching, almost a, a dirge-like feel to it, where these wise men are, these magi are just traveling, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, across these hundreds of miles. But as you hopefully saw or heard, um, these lyrics have deep meaning to them. We want to be singing songs that are accurate, to what we know and believe to be true about God and about God's word. And right off the bat, um, I notice a couple of things that I want to clear up. First of all, there is no mention in scripture of these men being kings. Um, They were likely important and honorable men, but there is no direct spiritual um, recognition that they are kings, that they are any kind of royalty. There's also no mention in scripture of how many magi there were. Um, The idea of three of them is likely based off of the fact that there were three gifts. And so there's got to be one, two, three wise men, three magi to deliver these three gifts. But there's nothing that explicitly tells us how many of them there were. Um, So just those couple of things to to kick us off. But this song opens um, by using verse 1, as you can see on your lyric sheets there, as a simple identification of who these men are. And what they're doing. They are kings of Orient. So magi from the east. They are bringing gifts. They've traveled a great distance through field and fountain, moor and mountain. And they've done it all by following a star. So that's verse 1. Verses 2, 3, and 4 then uh, describe each detail of these three gifts that are brought to Jesus. They give us hints also about the symbolic nature of those gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So verse 2 is the gift of gold. The last two lines of verse 2 kind of harken back to the prophets, um, specifically Isaiah. If you've been with us through Advent, we we went through Isaiah um, or covered parts of Isaiah. Um, The prophets spoke of this king who was coming to reign with justice and righteousness forever. Now and forevermore, this king would be. And so this gift of gold is just that, for the king who is to reign both now and forevermore. Verse 3, then, is the gift of frankincense. Um, Burning frankincense gives off this aroma and was used often in religious settings um, with the the symbolism being that these prayers are being lifted to heaven. Um, 
this idea of the incense burning and things being lifted up to heaven. So in the third line of verse 3, there are the prayers and the praises of all men. Um, Regardless of nation or God, all men's praises. The Magi themselves came to worship the Lord of all. And then verse 4 is the gift of myrrh. So described in verse 4 as a bitter perfume, um, this, this verse is a little bit of a downer, if sung on its own. Um, the bitter perfume, myrrh is pungent and, and more medicinal in nature. And so this verse is darker and more somber because it reminds us that even at the birth and in the early years of Jesus, Jesus is coming to sacrifice himself for us. But then verse 5 flips that switch on the sorrow and the gloom and the bitterness of verse 4 because behold, Christ is risen. The second line of verse 5 is kind of a summary there of all three of the gifts. The king, which is gold, God, frankincense, and sacrifice, myrrh. King and God and sacrifice. And in this mini narrative of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Hopkins calls us earth to heaven replies, to, to respond to that gift, the gift of Christ. Earth to heaven replies. And then we arrive at the chorus, or the refrain, as it is called. Um, its purpose seems to be twofold, in my understanding of it. One, what the star is to them. It's a wonder. It's westward leading all of these, all of these things. Um, but the thing that I want us to really focus on is the very end there. Its purpose is what they desire it to be, to guide us to thy perfect light. And as we have sung in a couple of different songs this morning, Jesus is that perfect light. Guide us to thy perfect light, the light of the world. I think that that's where this passage in Matthew and where this song are pointing to, to God's guidance, guiding us to thy perfect light, to Jesus Christ. So the imagery of this star is central to the narrative and to this chorus, to this refrain. In singing it after each verse, after the gifts, after, even after the doom and gloom of verse 4, Hopkins is inviting us to join the Magi in this plodding along, following the star that is guiding us to thy perfect light. We are all singing this throughout history for God to guide us to thy perfect light. So to really sing that, to really do what the Magi did, and to put our trust in God's guidance, we have to be willing to relinquish control sometimes. It's something that Herod couldn't ever do. It's something that is difficult. I, I personally will admit it's difficult to do. I like to be in control of the things around me. But we have to be willing to let that go in order for God to lead us, to guide us. Because if we have any say in the matter, our path, even at the purest of intentions, guiding us to thy perfect light, will tend to veer off and go towards the path that's the nicest, the path that's the easiest, the path that that looks the best. 
but that is not always God's path. The path that God guides us on is often difficult at points. It looks a little worse for wear. It looks like I will be a little uncomfortable if I go that route. I don't know if I want to be around the people that that path takes me towards. But when we allow ourselves to be guided by God, to be guided toward that perfect light, by the star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, it is probably going to be out of our comfort zone, but that is where we find Christ. That is where we find the Christ child. It's hard for me to ignore um, the thought-provoking ending to this passage in Matthew 2 that we read. It says, they went back to their own country by another road. Of course they did, right? Herod, they're, they're a little bit afraid of this, this guy that's a little bit off his rocker. They've kind of double-crossed him by not reporting back to him the location. And so who knows what he's going to do to them. But there is a little bit of mystery that we can read into here. Once, once we have come face-to-face with Jesus, once we have had this encounter with Jesus, we, don't, we aren't called to continue plodding down our path. We're not called to go down those same old paths that we've always gone down when it was our own choice. But as we encounter Jesus, even the toddler Jesus that the Magi run into, it does not leave us the same as we were. If we, if our encounter with Jesus initially has us looking the same as it does however many days, weeks, months, years later, something's not matching up there. The uh, poet T.S. Eliot wrote a poem about the Magi. And he ends it by saying, We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. When we allow God to guide us closer to Jesus, we begin to see every detail of the world around us differently. Things start to shift. We can't go back the same way. We can't help but go home by another road. Because Jesus doesn't make our lives more comfortable. Jesus doesn't make our lives easier. I wish it was the case. But the closer that we get to Jesus Christ, the more we sense this dis-ease about this place that we live in. Because this is not our ultimate home. Our ultimate home is not on this path that we design for ourselves. It is the path that takes us closer to Jesus, to thy perfect light. We're going to be taking communion today in just a minute. And if you haven't already gotten them, like me, apparently, I thought I had grabbed one. Um, There are some on the back table out in the fellowship hall. (laughs) Thank you. Um, But in communion, we recognize and we declare this truth that is in verse 4. That Christ suffered, Christ died, Christ sacrificed himself to the point of death in order to restore our relationship with God. There is the doom and gloom of verse 4. But in communion, we also recognize the truth of verse 5 
and the celebration that we can have that Christ is risen. Christ has come back. Christ has triumphed over the grave and we can have new life and sing praises to him. So as we receive the grace that has been freely given to us through this sacrifice and through this resurrection, we are doing this act of submission, of surrendering control over our lives and allowing God to shape us and form us into who God calls us to be. We're giving up trying to find our own path, our own way, and we are following this star that leads us closer to Christ, closer to thy perfect light. The more that we lean on God's guidance, the closer we get to Jesus, and the closer we get to Jesus, the more like Jesus we become. The communion supper is a sacrament. It's an act of of God's grace which declares the life, the death, and the suffering and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It shows forth the Lord's death until his return. It is a means of grace, a way in which we receive God's grace, in which Christ is present by the Spirit. We are to receive it with knowledge and thanksgiving of the work of Christ. You don't have to be a member of this church to partake all that is asked of you is to be truly repentant, to turn away from your sins, and to believe that Christ is the only way to salvation. We're all invited to participate in this death and resurrection of Christ by coming to the table to be renewed in life and salvation, to be made one by the Holy Spirit. In unity with the church, Christ followers around the world, we confess this faith, that Christ has died that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. And so we pray. Holy God, we gather at this, your table, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who by your Spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, fed the hungry, ate with sinners, and established the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope that he will come again and make all things new. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to his disciples, and said, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. So we gather as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to you, gracious God, in praise and thanksgiving. Would you pour out your spirit on us and on these, your gifts? By the power of the spirit, make them to be for us, the body and the blood of Christ, that we may be for the world, the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one in Christ, one with each other, and one in the ministry of Christ to all the world, until Christ comes in final victory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And now we pray the prayer that God taught us, that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken for you, may it preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Eat this in remembrance that Christ has died for you, and be thankful. And the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for you, may it preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ has died for you, and be thankful. Now the worship team is going to come back up and we're going to close this time of worship by singing together this song, We Three Kings. As we sing, I want us to remember the purpose for which we sing. It's not for our benefit or, or our own pleasure, but it is for God. We sing first and foremost as a form of praise, declaring who we know and believe God to be and lifting him up above all else in our worship. We sing as a form of proclamation, responding in recognition of how God has been at work in our lives. And we sing as a form of prayer, putting our trust in God, committing our future to him, and asking that he would be made known in new and fresh ways in the world around us. As we sing this song, let these lyrics become more than just a song. Let them become our our prayer to God, the God who loves you, the God who sustains you, the God who guides you closer and closer to thy perfect light. <laughs>